It starts with a lot of empathy and a lot of curiosity to understand, first of all, what drives these corporations in the short term, but mostly in the long run. No matter if it's design or any other culture, is to deeply understand what is going to be the future of the company you are for. Not just the future that somebody is telling you or is talking about, that often is a future focus on the next quarter, on the next year, on the next two, three years. Now ask yourself, where is the world going in 20 years? And where this industry you play in is going in 20 years? That was PepsiCo SVP and Chief Design Officer Mauro Percini. In this episode, Mauro and I discuss what great design looks like, how it ties to innovation, the insights from his most recent book, The Human Side of Innovation, and why we are all designers. And I'm really excited to bring you this conversation after a brief word from our sponsor. It's time to let go of the past perceptions of HR. Amplify is a new model of agency design from the ground up to support business and people leaders navigate the new world of work. We do that through two platforms. Our HR executive search practice is a new model of agency that moves away from traditional transactional search models with our flat fee pricing structure and advisory on the front and back end to help our clients attract and retain transformational people leaders. Our Amplify Academy is a unique platform to support continuous learning and build readiness, capability, and global networks for today's HR practitioners and leaders through the AI Learning Lab, peer learning cohort programs, community, and a range of resources to support their growth. You can learn more at AmplifyTalent.com. Now, on to the show. Welcome to the Redefining HR Podcast. I'm your host, Lars Schmidt, and today I'm really thrilled to be joined by Mauro Porcini. Mauro is the SVP and Chief Design Officer at PepsiCo. He's also the author of The Human Side of Innovation, and we're going to get into all of that in the next 30 minutes. So, uh, Mauro, thank you so much for making time to join the podcast. Uh, I'd love to have you open with an introduction for the audience. Well, thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure. And um, an introduction about what I do, who I am. I am a designer. I work for a big multinational corporation. I am the first chief design officer of that corporation. It happened to be PepsiCo, 10 years here. And before that, I was 10 years in another corporation in a completely different industry, the tech industry with 3M. And again, the first ever chief design officer. Also there, I mentioned this for a specific reason. These 20 years have been uh, very exciting and challenging years, not just doing design, but trying to build a culture of design and human centricity that didn't exist in these organizations. And so uh, my job is not just the one of being a designer, but it's also the one of trying, trying to build culture within very successful, very established, uh, big corporations at scale. Yeah. And look, that's not easy work. You're trying to bring design into well-established, uh, well-structured global entities that uh, you know hadn't had somebody like you 
helping them think through that. And I want to get into that at PepsiCo. But before we do, I want to kind of go back to your earlier days. You know, you, you shared that uh, you, you, you picked up a lot of your inspiration for design and innovation and creativity from your parents, who are both in the arts as artists and poets. And I'd love to learn more about that. How, how did that kind of growing up in a household like that with two very uh, artistic and design-minded parents, how did that influence and shape your career and kind of set you on the trajectory that you're on? Well, obviously it's been extremely inspiring. And, and just to clarify a detail, and my father was an architect, but he's been painting all his life. So at the end of the day, he was an artist, as you say. My mother was working in finance, but she was writing every day and thoughts and poems. And, and then she left work to be closer to her children when she was 38. But in reality, she left work also because she didn't like doing what she was doing and she just wanted to do something different. So forget even what they were doing, but it's the reason why they were doing those things. It was very inspiring. They went after what they loved. And no matter their situations, what they, they were doing, my father kept working as an architect. He likes, you know, working as an architect. He was also a teacher in high school, but his passion was painting. He did it all the time, all his life. My grandfather was the same, by the way. Uh, my mother, the same. In, in her case, she even left her job. And for clarity, we were not wealthy at all. We were quite the opposite, actually. We were all sleeping in one bedroom, the four of us, my brother, me, and, and my parents. So these kind of choices were not easy ones. But looking at them, going after what they loved was very important for me. That was number one. Thing. The other one was the actual uh, content of what they were doing. And, you know, for one was art, for the other one was writing, but they were all connected by the same kind of matrix, by the same theme. And is the idea of this humanistic approach to everything and this idea of expressing yourself through an art. It could be, once again, writing, painting. Uh, later on, for me, became also the art of uh, talking and sharing. And then, you know, in my case, it became a book, but many other things. This passion that somehow is in the vein and the blood of the family of expressing ourselves through a variety of different media, uh, pushing out there something that is really connected to the idea of love. Uh, and we can talk more about this, but I see this in my parents, I see this in my brother, I see this in myself. There is this common theme in a way or the other with very, very, very different expressions and manifestations. Yeah, you know, I, I like the way you frame that, though, because that um, that ability to find outlets for self-expression can take so many different forms and it doesn't necessarily have to be connected to your profession and and what you do. You can find those outlets and nurture them in different ways. And, you know, as you mentioned, you, you, you have uh, a recent career of firsts being a first chief design officer at 3M and, you know, almost 10 years ago, having a similar role at PepsiCo. And I'm curious to get your perspective. Like, obviously, you, you, you've, the experience at 3M gave you that a bit of a roadmap, perhaps, of as a first chief design officer, these are the things you need to do. These are the things you need to overcome. Uh, and now you're doing that, and obviously a different environment, different industry, but probably similar challenges. And, and if you had to look back over your last, you know, nearly 10 years at PepsiCo, what, what uh, accomplishment stands out the most to you? I imagine you've had your hands on a lot of different 
projects and transformation, but does any one thing stand out to you in terms of the impact you've had? Look, I've been working all these years to make sure that the company doesn't need me anymore. <laughs> and what I mean is uh, probably the biggest accomplishment is not a specific project. Obviously, I have my favorite ones. You know, we, we, we've been creating thousands of different products and brands and, and, and some of them are highlights, especially the ones investing in sustainability, in health and wellness, technology, enabling personalization. So there are a few highlights that you know, are very close to my heart because through them, we're trying to change an industry to have a different impact on society and on the planet. So of course there are. But my biggest accomplishment is the creation of a culture of design, of human centricity uh, that I really hope will last no matter if I am there or not. You know, it's, it's, it's a legacy. Somehow, if you, if you reflect on the deeper meaning of something like this, uh, and I do at the end of the book, uh, is that um, drive that many people have usually later in their lives, you know, it's not right away. It's not the beginning of your life journey. It's, it's come, it comes later in life of creating something that transcends yourself, something bigger than yourself, something that will last after yourself. And somehow is an instinct to defeat death, to defeat the fact that sooner or later this life will end, you know, in, in, on, on the, uh, in the physical manifestation at least. And so uh, the idea of creating something that somehow is adding value, not just to the company, but is adding value to society, to the world with this human-centered approach to everything we do uh, is really something that is making me somehow proud. And I also see that as just, you know, it's not accomplished yet. It's a journey and we'll keep working on the journey. It's not just me, it's my entire team, but it's still, you know, even that is part of the accomplishment, the fact, the re realization that by myself, I could have done nothing. And I needed to surround myself with amazing design talents. And I needed to find amazing co-conspirators, as I like to call them, inside the organization to drive this change. And so all of this is something that, you know, looking back, uh, I really love uh, to think of. Yeah, and, and I'd love to get your perspective on that because you're right, there, there's, there's great design and you can see that, you can name it, you can touch it in some cases. And there's a culture of design, which is really something that permeates everything in the organization. And how, like you've done this twice, how, how do you go about doing that, right? Because I think a lot of times design is such an interesting function that the impact of design transcends the department, if you will, of design. It touches everything. And so if you're taking a humanistic approach and really working on building a culture of design, how do you go about doing that? Well, first of all, you need to be clear about what design is and why design is relevant at all to your company. And, and so it starts with a lot of empathy and a lot of curiosity to understand, first of all, what drives these corporations in the short term, but mostly in the long run. So don't, you know, any, an advice that I may give to anybody trying to do something similar, no matter if it's design or any other culture, is to deeply understand what is going to be the future of the company you work for. Not just the future that somebody is telling you or is talking about, 
that often is a future focus on the next quarter, on the next year, on the next two, three years. Now ask yourself, where is the world going in 20 years? And where this industry you play in is going in 20 years? In the case of PepsiCo, the food and beverage industry. And where do I see PepsiCo playing in 20 years? And then how can I leverage this new culture to prepare the company for the future? And how can I first define a vision for the future, but then going back to today, because you still need to deliver value for the next quarter, how can I start to move the culture, the projects, the ways of working, the processes towards the future from your perspective? Obviously, this is what the CEO does, the executive team of a company does, but you, with your own diversity, with your own different point of view, how do you contribute to that kind of vision? And, and why this question is so important? Because often, if you are bringing something new to the game, the people on the other side of the fence, the people there in the company, in this case, won't understand right away what you can bring to the table. They will have certain kind of expectations. In the case of design, they expected me to bring to the table style and aesthetic for packaging and products, but they didn't really realize in depth all the things that were obvious to me because I've been working on this for many, many years. I'm part of a community that is different than their community. And so I needed to be clear about the value that I was bringing to them in that kind of context. The second thing I needed to adapt, the way I was talking about that value, I needed to learn a new language, the language of business, of finance, of corporations, and I needed to explain that value in their language. The mistake that often a new community, community does when entering an established organization of any kind is that you don't learn the language of the other person. So the first step was empathy, understanding what is relevant. The second step is being a polyglot, as I call them in the book, uh, or in other words, the ability of talking different languages, different cultural languages, uh, to explain what kind of value you bring. So my effort was to translate the world of intuition, emotion, style, uh, and at the end of the day, human centricity and those humanistic values that I learned from my parents and the idea of love into productivity, return on investment, uh, business growth. Uh, so it's not been easy, but once you understand how to do it, these companies are always authentically looking for growth and innovation and changing the culture to better themselves. They really try to do that. That Obviously, this is in contrast then with the stability of the business. You want to make sure that you keep that stability, you keep incrementally growing on the core. But, but, but there is that, uh, that desire anyway to keep bettering yourself. So how can you combine the two dimensions is very, very important. Empathy and adapting your language to your target audience has been really, really key in that journey for us. Yeah. And, you know, you, you referenced a few things from the book and I, I feel it's a good transition to, to get into that. So your new book, The Human Side of Innovation, uh, was recently released. And I, I love origin stories. I'd love to kind of go back to the beginning. When did this idea for the book kind of come to me? When, when did it, you know, kind of, you know, begin fostering as, as thoughts and ideas that maybe began stringing together and then it was 
I have to write this book. What, what was that journey like for you? Well, there are two components to this. One is my passion for writing. I, as a kid, I wanted to be either an author or an artist. Again, probably I was inspired by my parents in experimenting with those different, you know, words. Uh, but then when I was experimenting, things were coming natural and I was good at writing, good at painting. And so I had these two passions. I ended up being a designer, but always with a passion and with the role model of my parents that essentially uh, made me think that it was okay in parallel to what I was doing to push the passions that I had. So I started my uh, professional journey, as I say in the book, taking notes about what was happening in my life, both my professional and my personal life. There was this passion that I realized later was not just a passion for writing or, or painting. It was a passion for storytelling and sharing because then it became a passion you know, I, I love to speak on stage. I remember very soon when I was, I still had my own agency. I was going to uh, my teachers in university asking if I could help them and giving lectures. And so there was always that passion for sharing and communicating. It's all the same, you know, common theme. So I was writing because I loved writing. And, and at a certain point it became important because being on stage, I needed to transform my experiences, my successes and my failures in story to share. I, need to, I needed to story tell what was happening in my life. And then I needed to do that also because I was going in front of all these business leaders in these companies and I needed to pitch design to them and I needed to convince them to invest millions of dollars in design. So I needed to build these stories. And, and first of all, even before arriving to the book, all these stories helped me decodify in a way or the other a playbook, what was working, what was not, so that I could replicate what was working and avoid what was not working and essentially build once again a playbook that I took from 3M to PepsiCo and applied to build design in that organization. And there's a playbook that could be applied to any kind of reality. So that was very useful. This Stepping back from the day-to-day -day where we run, 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 and we drive projects and everything. Stepping back, putting things in perspective and reflecting on everything. So that was very powerful. Again, I was writing for myself pieces of other books, of other people, articles. And at a certain point, I was like, okay, it's time to write this book. And the time arrived uh, for two reasons. On one side, when I felt that I had enough uh, awareness about that journey, uh, it's not just enough information, but also that I had reflected long enough, years and years, decades of reflection on certain things. So that I was like, okay, I'm ready to tell the story. The second uh, variable was that for me, you know, my life is already busy enough with what I do in PepsiCo and, and, and everything's going on uh, beyond PepsiCo in my private life. So this needed to be for me something that I was going to enjoy, a pleasure. So I needed to find a stability in my life that would give me the peace of mind to write something like this. And that came when, you know, my emotional uh, situation, you know, with my partner, Carlotta, you know, was very stable when we started to plan uh, the arrival of a baby. So uh, stability was 
important because I wanted to enjoy writing this book. I didn't need to write a book. I wanted to have fun writing a book. And so when the time arrived for these two reasons, I was like, okay, let's go and let's write it. As an HR practitioner navigating the new world of work, your ability to learn, connect with resources, and build your global peer community is essential to your success. That's why I launched the Amplify Academy. The Amplify Academy was built from the ground up to help HR practitioners and people leaders efficiently and effectively connect with the diverse learning needs and resources for today and tomorrow. There are three components to the Academy. The Learning Lab is an AI learning platform that includes a range of courses, resources, templates, content, and more to support the learning needs around modern HR practices for today and tomorrow. The Amplify Academy Slack community is designed to help you build your global network equity and peer set with practitioners around the world who share your vision for progressive HR practices. And the Amplify Academy cohorts are four-week immersive peer learning programs designed to help people leaders build the skills and network they need to succeed as an HR leader in today's environment. Cohort students also learn from world-class people leaders from Katie Burke, Pat Waters, Claude Silver, Brian Power, AJ Thomas, and so many more. Want to supercharge your people team? Be sure to check out the Academy for Teams product, which is designed to give you and your people teams access to over 400 resources, the full community, and more across the Amplify Academy. Learn more at amplifytalent.com slash academy. Now, back to the show. When you talk about having fun writing a book, I think for, for those of you listening or, or watching, that have written books, you know, you know that process that it could it could wildly go between, uh, you know, what feels like arduous at times to what feels like joy when you're maybe um, discovering new things about yourself in the writing process. And I'm curious for you when you you know obviously you you had an idea, you had a lot of self reflection that led to the book. When you sat down to start writing it, did anything surprise you? Did anything maybe come out that you weren't expecting? as you began kind of getting getting all of your ideas and thoughts into the book? Yeah, actually, I mentioned even in the book itself, I mentioned, you know, um, something that I'm going to share with you right now. First of all, writing a book is very similar to designing a product. And you can use the same technique of design thinking in writing a book because it's the same thing. You are creating something. And so... In design thinking, one of the definitions of design thinking is that is is, uh, is something that leads at the crossroad between empathy, strategy, and prototyping. Empathy is literally when you write a book about understanding what is relevant to your target audience. What are you trying to say? What is the message you want to deliver? Strategy is about crafting it in a way that makes sense from a business standpoint, so that is something that actually could become a real book that you can sell and people can read else you're just writing for yourself is a beautiful piece of art but you don't have access to people out there but prototyping is the most interesting part prototyping is when you have an idea and then you take the pen and you start to write and all of a sudden in the action of writing while you are in the flow somebody defined that you know you you enter in that kind of creative ecstasy you're in the flow Things come out that you didn't even think about. 
And this is magic. And then, so that's one power of prototyping. It happened the same exact thing when you start to mock up a product. In fact, I call prototypes, could be a mock-up of a product, or it could be a, you know, something that you, you sketch on a, on a post-it note, or it could be something you write you know, for your book in a piece of paper or in a digital paper. When you start to prototype, a prototype is an act of thinking. It's not just the manifestation of something you have in mind, it's thinking itself. Thinking by yourself, but also thinking with others. Because the moment you put that on writing or you create something, then first of all, you can share it with others and they can give you the point of view and you can build on this and you can evolve it. The second thing that happens is that you can help, you can add time between the moment you create your prototype, you write something and eventually the moment you read again what you wrote. Time is magic. Heraclitus no, thousands of years ago, the philosopher Heraclitus used to say, you can never go as the same person in the same river, because every time you go in the river, the river will be different and you will be different. You know, you write something the day after you're already a different person because things happen between the moment you write and the day after that somehow help you reinterpreting what you did and what you wrote in different ways. So long story short, there was the first magic of writing is literally the fact that you are taking out, like in therapy, I don't know, you know, if you've ever been in therapy or the people listening to us have been in therapy, you take it out in front of somebody, in front of a piece of paper in this case, and all of a sudden you're discovering new things about you that you didn't expect. And then the, the other magic part is when you actually publish and then you get feedback from people on what you wrote. What did I discover? So I went all around to, you know, and now I'm going to answer your question. Well, first of all, I discovered that um, I, what I was talking about were universal ideas that totally transcended the world of design and also the world of innovation. We're talking about human truth. And even though somehow I had already this intuition, I was already before publishing the book, talking in conferences about the fact that what I was talking about was bigger than design. But by writing it down, reading it back, and then when I started to get some feedback from people, I was like, wow, yeah, people relate to this. Even if you're not a designer, even if you don't work in innovation, even if you don't even work in a corporation. So I was like, that's interesting. The other thing that is really, I'm so happy about it. And I'm discovering actually very recently, and it's through the feedback, the early feedback I'm getting on the book, um, is how people resonate so much on specific values of these innovators I talk about in the book. Values like kindness, optimism, and curiosity. There are 24 characteristics of these innovators that I talk about in the book in hundreds of pages, but there are these three values that somehow connect many others that people are like, wow, we love it. We love it that it's coming from an executive of a corporation that you talk about kindness as a driver of productivity, of efficiency, of effectiveness, that you actually challenge the idea that many people have in the business world, that kindness is a weakness. You shouldn't be too kind. Eventually you need to be a little bit tough. Eventually you need to put people against each other so that you can extract as much as possible out of the conflict in a Darwinian kind of way. And instead, here, here it is, an executive of a corporation, they say, no, 
No, you can be kind. And actually, if you are kind and your peers are kind, you're going to drive efficiency and productivity. And these companies talk about productivity all the time, but they talk about cutting costs, optimizing processes, laying off people. And nobody ever talks about how to invest in kindness to increase the productivity of your company. Kindness build bonds amongst people, is the glue of a team, is what uh, makes you go to work from nine to five and desire then to spend a little bit of time with your colleagues to have a drink, to share a meal. Or the opposite of kindness is what makes you go to work from nine to five and then rush home because you don't want to see these people, you know, until the next day. But when you spend time with these people in, in that quality time, that's when you build the bonds and the synergies that are so important when later on you will face a challenge on the project or in your business or even in your personal life. And those problems you have in your personal life are anyway problems that you bring to work. And so you want to be surrounded by people that are there to help you, to connect with you, that are not there ready to stab you on the back in the first moment of weakness. By the way, if you're afraid that you're surrounded by people that could betray you in the moment you are the most weak or your project is the most weak, what do you do? You're gonna do a series of activities to protect yourself. And those activities are totally redundant. The company doesn't need those activities. Now imagine a series of activities like this multiplied for hundreds of thousands of people inside the corporation. And imagine the level of lack of productivity that this kind of behavior is generating inside the company at scale. Produ lack of productivity that is totally uh, hidden, that is not visible. Or just to close, imagine you have a person in your team that is not kind. What are the probability that you're going to help this person when this person has a blind spot, is making a mistake? Uh, they are not very high. This person has been tough on you, on you all the time. But let's say that you're so kind that no matter that, you're going to help anyway. Even in the case, there is a good probability that this person is not going to accept your help. He's not going to accept your feedback and suggestion. So this person will stay in their blind spot, making the mistake they're making. Now, once again, think you're the CEO of a company, you're a business leader. Do you want hundreds of teams with people making mistakes because they are unable to surround themselves with people that can give them feedback, that can have an interaction with, that are willing to give those feedback? Or you prefer to have teams that are really helping each other. Kindness is such an amazing driver of productivity. And so I started to write about this. It's been part of what I did all my life. But then step by step, I became more and more aware of the business value of kindness. So I started to practice it in a more strategic way in PepsiCo in the creation of my teams years ago. But the moment I started to write about this and the feedback I'm seeing out there, I, I spoke about this in conferences. I saw people getting emotional, people tearing up and crying. And that made me realize something I didn't realize before. There are so many nice people out there. So many kind people that they go to work or they go out there in, you know, in the, in the different path of life and they try to toughen up. They try to be less kind because they are surrounded by that kind of environment. They think that it's better, you know, they're better leaders if they are not that nice, they're not that kind or, or just 
you know, they're like this, but they're bombarded in social media every day by the negativity and people are not nice. And they think this is the world we live in. It's not. The amount of people that want that kind of approach that is more human and more based on the idea of love is huge. It's mind-blowing. And we need to push this further. I, I'm literally, you know, falling in love with the idea of love and how it's resonating with people in, in the business world. Yeah, look, I, I really appreciate you, you know, underscoring that so much because you're right. I think when you have uh, a culture, an organizational culture rooted in kindness, it unlocks so much uh, because you're not in a position, you're not working from a place of fear. You're not working from a place of, uh, you know, self-consciousness. You can take risks. You know that that's accepted. And if you take a risk and you fail, there'll be some learnings from that and you can, you can build on it. And I think it's, uh, it, it's just, it, it's interesting. You're right. So often we don't hear the connection between kindness and business ROI and impact, but it's clearly linked. And, and you make another point in the book about innovation uh, and innovation being an act of love specifically. And I'd love for you to expand on that. If you think about the first real acts of innovation was when, the prehistoric men or women took something available in nature and decided to modify what was available in nature. They took a stone, two stones actually, and they scratched them with each other and they built for the first time uh, a man-made tool to hunt, to prepare food, later on to decorate your, their bodies, later on to celebrate their gods. And so, Essentially, what they were doing, they were trying to fulfill a series of needs uh, for themselves and for the people close to them. I just, even just the need, the, the action that I just described, uh, essentially they go from the bottom of the Maslow pyramid, is safety, is the, the physiological needs, to the center is about connection with others, sense of belonging, all the way to the top, the transcendence. If you fulfill all the needs in the Maslow pyramid, essentially what you're doing, you're looking, you're trying to reach your happiness. Happiness is at the end of that path, defined, decodified by all these different needs that you have. And so all of this, when you try to fulfill all those different needs, all of this is nothing else than an act of love for yourself and for the people close to you. Now, they started to create these tools and then, you know, over the years, over hundreds of years, uh, human evolution, they started to create more and more of these objects and products. And then at a certain point, there were so many that they couldn't do everything by themselves. So they started to delegate it to others. They went to the other tribe and they were like, okay, you're going to do this. I'm going to do this. And we exchange our products and our goods. And then over the years, they, all of this started to be defined uh, by the idea of work, the idea of cities, the idea of commerce, companies, brands. And at a certain point, love got, got substituted by profit. They stopped doing things like, imagine when you were designing a tool for your kid or for your uh, parents, you will try to do the best of the best of the best because you really care about them or for your friends in your close community. You, you care about that. By the way, you care. And on top of it, they were also holding you, holding you accountable for what you're doing. I mean, how? <laughs> right. I mean, you, you really did that? But then with scale, you started to put a distance between you, innovator, and the people you are serving. 
There was not a face anymore. There was not a name and a last name. You are not loving them anymore. You were caring about yourself. And therefore, the way to care about yourself was the profit you are extracting from that innovation. For many, many years in the past uh, 100 years, that was okay. Because with scale came few players in the in each industry and product categories that at a certain point found a dynamic balance. So you are creating uh, cars or uh, furniture or food and beverage or anything you are creating. You are creating something. Your competitor more or less was creating something similar. There was some incremental innovation. But then at the end of the day, this is what you are finding in traditional retail when you are going out there buying products. It was the balance of the industry. Until, and, and it was very difficult for anybody to go and compete with these established brands of any, of, of any size, by the way. You know, in some industries, you have these giant organizations. In other industries, you have smaller companies. But again, there is always that dynamic balance in every single industry. Today, the situation is very different. Anybody out there can come up with an idea, get easy access to funding through the proliferation of investment funds or platforms like kickstarter.com. The cost of manufacturing is going down, driven by globalization and new technologies. You go straight to the people you want to serve with e-commerce and social media to sell them your products and to promote your products. So all of a sudden, you have millions of people out there looking at all the categories and trying to figure out where are the opportunities. If there is any kind of frustration, unsatisfaction, or desire, or a met need of people for a product, for a brand, for an entire category. When they see that opportunity, eventually, if they have the the right idea, they can enter that industry. In the past, they could not because there were these huge barriers to entry made of scale of production, distribution, and communication that today are down because of this new uh, competitive scenario that I just described. So long story short, for the first time in history, in the past few years, all these companies, they need to remember (laughs) that they need to love the people they serve, they need to put love back at the center of everything. They can't focus just on creating profit, leveraging that you know, uh, dynamic balance. But the only way to compete in a sustainable way in time, the best barriers to entry you can build is to create something extraordinary for people. Product, packaging, service, purpose. You may have the best product, the best packaging, but a bad service. Or you may have great product, service, and pack, but your product is not sustainable enough or your brand is not purposeful enough. That's exactly where competition will come. So you are left with this need as a company of creating extraordinary solutions from any standpoint for these people. And that's why, once again, and I close, you need to put people at the center of everything. Love for these people is your driver. You really need to care for what you create, like if you are creating it for your family, for your kids, for your friends. Like it happened at the beginning of time, at the beginning of innovation, innovation needs to go back to its roots. There was this idea of being an act of love. Profit needs to be there, but it is a consequence of something extraordinary you build versus being a a consequence of uh, that balance that you are able to build with your barriers to entry in the past. Yeah, 
Now, such a fascinating perspective on it. And it, for readers uh, or viewers, I should say, and listeners who want to go deeper uh, and get their hands in the books, what, what is the best place for them to find it? Well, first, let's, let's start with the title is The Human Side of Innovation, The Power of People in Love with People. You can find it in all the places that sell book. Amazon, probably an easy one where to find it all around the world. Yeah. Well, Mauro, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing uh, your work, sharing your journey and sharing the book with us. Uh, I know a lot of people, again, as you mentioned, it transcends design and I think it's universally relevant and certainly uh, excited to, uh, to dig in deeper. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me and thanks everybody for listening. And yes, let's spread the love. <laughs> thanks for tuning into this episode of Redefining HR. For more information on the podcast, past episodes, future guests, the Redefining HR book, or free resources, be sure to check out redefininghr.com. And if you dig this podcast, why don't you share it with your CEO, your executive team, and your friends to help them discover what Redefining HR is all about. If you really dig this podcast, I'd love for you to leave a review on whatever podcast delivery vehicle your ears prefer. See you next week.